Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. We're so glad that you're here um, at Christmas Eve service. We know that some of you are here visiting, you're out of town, you're with family. Thank you for making this a part of your night. As Sam said, Christmas is a lot about gifts, and of course the greatest gift, Jesus, but I know that that's going to be a tradition when you go home, either tonight or tomorrow. A lot of, a lot of us will be opening gifts if you haven't already. And, um, you know, I was thinking through the ages of how sometimes we are so desperate to find that one gift that's like the hot gift of the year. And, um, oh, we're not there yet. Yes, there we go. In 1934, the first really hot gift was the Shirley Temple doll. And uh, is, did anybody here get that doll? Because I didn't even know it existed until this week. So um, my mom would have been like 10 years old at the time. So uh, in the 1960s, though, people like me got G.I. Joe. You know, he just wanted G.I. Joe action figure. And, uh, and then we've got the Cabbage Patch Kids, as my sister really loved those. I don't know what the big deal was with those smushed faces, but they loved those. And we, now we've got the Star Wars action figures. If you still have that in the original box, it's worth like thousands of dollars. So that's a really great thing to have. Um, my dad bought a Teddy Ruxpin for himself. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was like he could push that, the, the hand on that thing and it would say nice things back to him. I thought maybe because the kids didn't, the Teddy Ruxpin did. He loved that. Tickle Me Elmo. Um, that was a rage for many years. Uh, Transformers. When my son was growing up, that was a big deal. The Transformers. Take those figures, fold them all up, and it becomes a car. You know, amazing. And then recently, Nintendo Wii, which actually is for the whole family. You can play sports, you can watch movies, play all kinds of games. You know, I feel real sad because when I was growing up, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of gifts under the tree. I think it was in junior high. One of my greatest thrills for Christmas was to get this, soap on a rope. <laughs> you guys remember that? I don't know if it's a big deal anymore, but for me, I was like, that's the greatest invention. I mean, you're not going to lose it in the tub anymore. It's like right there around your wrist. You got soap on a rope. It's cool. Uh, it's, it's really not cool anymore, but, you know, when I was younger, it was cool. Well, I know some of you have uh, stayed in line. Like the day after Thanksgiving, you go in a line, you'll stay for hours because you want to get your little guy, your little girl, that one gift that there's limited amounts of. And some of you are willing to just give up anything to get it, even sell your oldest child to get that one gift for the little one in, in your life. You're willing to go to any lengths. And, you know, it makes me think of a, of a couple stories Jesus told of people who, who paid an incredible price to get something that they had been searching for their whole lives. But before I tell you those stories, I want to give you a backdrop because for the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Priceless. And the idea came because of a series of commercials by MasterCard in the 1990s about some family experiences. For example, the dad's at a ball game with the son, and it shows the price of the hot dog and the tickets and the foam finger, and then it shows them talking to each other and, and laughing together. And The son just having this great time with his dad, and it says, uh, you know, some things are priceless. And really there are. There are some things that are priceless. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 139, which says that you are priceless. I don't know if you've ever known that, but the Bible says that you are beautifully and wonderfully handcrafted by our Creator God. There's no one like you. There never has been. And, and not only that, but God knows everything about you. He knows how you're wired. He knows what you think about. He knows when you lie down and go to sleep. He knows when you're up. He knows what concerns you. He knows what hurts you. He knows what frustrates you. Um, he knows everything about you. And the Bible says that, that in spite of even the bad things God knows about us, he loves us. He has a plan for our lives. He knows the days numbered for us. God has a plan for your life. And, and most of us grow up missing that plan. And because what happened to the, the first couple that was placed on this earth, Adam and Eve, is they, 
They decided to do things their way instead of God's way. The, the whispers of an enemy, of, this, of, of Satan in the form of a serpent, caused them to not trust God's best for them. They took another route and did things that they thought were best. And you know, all of us have followed in the faint, same footsteps. And so we've got this issue with sin. And the Bible is really one story from, from beginning to end, one story of God's pursuit to buy us back, to redeem us. You read about it at the very beginning of the Bible. You see it all the way to the book of Revelation, this theme that runs through it. It's actually a color. It's a colored theme. It's a color red. Because there's a, a theme of red from the beginning of the Bible to the end of, of red, which is a color of blood. And it's, it's easy to remember because the word redemption starts with the letters R-E-D. So redemption. And redemption is a biblical word that means to pay a price to buy back or deliver. So God paid a price to buy us back from the debt owed because of our sin. And that payment was made through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the priceless gift of God. And we looked last Sunday as a church how Jesus gave his life for us, how Jesus was willing to take our guilt, our shame, our penalty of death upon himself so that we could be freed to live for him. God paid a price to buy us back. It was a steep price, the blood of Christ. And uh, in the Old Testament, we see these um, symbols and these rituals that remind us that the penalty for sin is death. And death really means the loss of life, and the loss of life is the loss of blood. So animals were sacrificed as a replacement. And an animal would die and lose its blood, in a sense, in place of the human. And it came in the book of um, Exodus where God's people, because of their rebellion and their forgetfulness of God, were taken captive by a nation called Egypt. And after 400 plus years, God sent a man named uh, Moses to rise up to deliver the people. And there came a night after um, a number of plagues came to Egypt to try to soften the heart of Pharaoh. And the last plague, and you might remember there was the, the, the Nile turned to blood and there was a plague of locusts and the plague of frogs and all these things. The last one was the death of the firstborn, that every family's firstborn male, not only of human, but even of the animals, would die when the death angel passed over. But God told his people, the ones that loved him, if you will do this, take a lamb, kill the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of, the, of your house, roast the lamb for dinner, uh, make unleavened bread, prepare some other things like bitter herbs and spices, and eat it in haste that evening because God is going to deliver you. And that night when the death angel came over, every home that had blood placed upon it, the blood of the lamb, that the angel passed over. That's why it was called the Passover. And for an annual celebration, they would have this feast called the Passover to remember their deliverance, their redemption purchased through the blood of the lamb. And it gave this picture in their mind that, that a lamb could take their place. Well, the whole Old Testament prepared them for this because a time was coming when there would be a lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so the day came for Jesus to be born. Now, you know the Christmas story, and you might remember, if you've ever watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special, that when that first came out, uh, Charles Schultz had written within the script of that story, at the very end, Linus, reading from the King James Bible, the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. The CBS executive says, you've got to cut that out. It will not fly with the American people. They will not like it. You need to take it out. And Charles Schultz says, we are not taking it out. That is the story. I cannot cut out the Christmas story out of my Christmas story. So it has to be in there. And they said, okay, we'll keep it in there. But they, they assumed this thing would flop. Well, two weeks ago, it played again for the 50th straight year. And anyone who watched it heard Linus read from Luke chapter 2. Now, I want to read... 
from Luke chapter 2, a portion of the scripture that he read. Um, And this is in the New International Version, but the story is exactly the same. And And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now we hear that, and in our minds we picture maybe a a stable where cows and horses are, and and there's hay, it smells stinky, it's cold and drafty, but um, there's another picture here that comes from history. In fact, I want to read to you from a man named Alfred Edersheim, who is a a biblical scholar. In his book called The Life and Times of Jesus Christ the Messiah, he says that the birth of Jesus happened in in Migdal Idar, which is called the Tower of the Flock. It was a special place on the outside of Bethlehem. He says that Migdal Idar was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks that pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. A passage from the Mishnah, Mishnah was a, was a collection of teachings for the Jewish rabbis, leads to the conclusion that the flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices. So these weren't just people raising sheep for, for wool and for meat. These, this was a special group of shepherds who worked with the temple, the, the, the rabbis and priests, to raise blemish-free lambs and to keep them protected And the tower there gave them a view where they could watch for intruders. There was a cave in that area, a cave that was used as a birthing place. So when the ewe was ready to give birth to her lamb, that they would go in this cave. It was probably not a smelly, stinky, dirty place, but very clean, very protected, very safe. And so when the angel said to the shepherds, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, he didn't have to tell them where that was. They knew where that was because in that region, in the cave, was where the lambs for the sacrifices were born. And they were often wrapped in strips of cloth to keep their arms from flailing and being hurt and damaged and marred. It's very likely that that these shepherds knew exactly that this was the prophecy being fulfilled, that this was the Lamb of God that was come to take away the sins of the world. When Jesus was 33 years old, was baptized by John the Baptist, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, for us, animal sacrifices sounds kind of gory. We don't quite understand it, but it really has been a part of a lot of cultures for a long, long time. I would say that maybe the closest thing we could even relate to it would be the sacrifice of a bird on Thanksgiving as a thank offering to God, and then we roast it, and then we eat it. Um, maybe in some similar ways, when the Old Testament offerings were made, sometimes they were for repentance, sometimes the offerings were for thanksgiving. Sometimes the offerings were then served as a meal. But the, the truth is that an animal died as part of their offering. And so the consequences of sin, the Bible says, is death. Now, we may think that's pretty severe. That's a Kind of extreme, isn't it? Why, why would I have to die because of sin? It, it, God's having a fit over one little thing that I do? Wait a minute. Really, has any of us done one little thing? Really. Our, our sins individually have piled so high, we are under a crushing weight of guilt and shame and bondage that crushes us. And see, the, the law is pretty simple. 
Really, if you boil the law down in the Bible, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. I think the best we often do is part of us, not all of us. And then it says, and love your neighbor as yourself. I have to admit, I, I often love myself a whole lot more than other people. I sure feed myself a whole lot better than I feed a lot of other people. I take care of myself and my needs and think more about myself than I think about a lot of other people in this world. And, and God says he made us to be for his glory. And yet we tend to make our lives about us, not about him. And that, that those times where we push God away and say, get out of my hair, God, I reject you, I, I'm rebelling against you, God says that's, that's the issue. It's not even a particular sin as much as it's a, it's a heart of rebellion against our creator, God. And, and so from God's perspective, he could easily look at us and say, why would I even want you in heaven with me forever? And yet in his grace, he sent Jesus Christ to be the gift, that sacrifice for us. He offers it freely to us, this gift of forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? The gift of Christmas is, and you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, here's where I want to take the rest of the message. For many of us in this room, and I used to be one of these, we believe the Christmas story. We, we don't doubt that there was a holy night a long time ago when this miraculous baby was born. And we don't often have trouble with the resurrection, the belief that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But here's where we have a problem. Doesn't make much difference in my life. I go to church, I come home, I don't feel like I'm any different. I've heard the message, doesn't do anything for me. There must be something faulty about it. But I think we have a, a misconception of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to give our lives to him. And I want to challenge you to move beyond a head belief to what the Bible calls a trust, because they're different. A head belief is just acknowledging something's true. A heart is a life commitment to what you believe to be true. So I'm going to read you those two little stories that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Matthew. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, as I read scripture, can be boiled down to this. It's living with Jesus reigning in your life. When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, it wasn't like a, a geographical location. It was seek his kingship, his authority over your life. And so he describes the kingdom of heaven in a number of ways. Here's two of them in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, sold all that he had and bought that field. Found a treasure, said, I gotta, I gotta have that field. I gotta sell everything, the, the animals, the house, the, you know, everything. I gotta have that field. If I have that field, I have everything. He says, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found the one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Here this person finds this pearl. Maybe it's a, a large pearl or, or it's an exquisite you know, coloring or pattern. He says, I've got to have that pearl. That's the got to have gift I've got to have. And I'm willing to sell everything I have to get that pearl. If, if all I have in life is I give up my house, give up, give up my, my refrigerator, give up everything, and all I have is this pearl, I'm happy. Because with that, I have the joy I've been looking for. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven is so satisfying, so thrilling, it's worth giving up everything for. And so here's two truths, and, and they, they, they seem to contradict each other, but you'll see, I hope, how they fit together. Number one is salvation is a free gift. God gives this gift to us and says, I, I give you forgiveness. It's a free gift. It's for you. You can't earn it. There's, there's no way you can 
do enough to merit this. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. There's that big word again that came by Christ Jesus. He paid the price. He gives us a free gift. You cannot earn it. It says a couple chapters later, actually in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. A gift is something you cannot earn. When you go home and um, open gifts, more than likely our families are like this. We give gifts indiscriminately. I mean, we don't, we don't give one person more gifts because they had a better year. We don't give the obedient child the bigger gifts. I, I hope not. I, I think most of us would say, you know what? Lo- love is equal. Because if it was based on how you performed, it would be a wage. It would be a reward. This isn't. A gift is a gift. There's no strings attached. In fact, I, I believe gifts, whether it be, be from parents or kids or from God, says more about the giver than the recipient because a gift is given from the heart of the giver. I give because I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving by nature. That's who I am. I'm a giver. And you happen to be the recipient of my generosity and grace. And so the Bible says that this is a free gift from God. Jesus took our place. He actually made this trade with us. He said, I'll take all your guilt, all your shame. I'll even take your punishment of death. And in trade, I'll give you eternal life, a life that never ends. How's that? Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? That's the deal Jesus makes. It sounds crazy. It sounds unbelievable. That's why it's called grace. You cannot earn it. You can't even think of it. No, no human would have devised a plan like that. It comes from God. It's mind-blowing, but it's true. He offers his free gift. That's why when Jesus was on the cross, he said, all that suffering, it is finished. It is finished. I did it there. What I want you to do is trust that I did it for you. Now, here's the, here's the second truth. Salvation is a free gift, but it costs everything you have. It costs everything you have. Like the man who sold everything he had to get the field or the man who sold everything he had to get the pearl of great price, to truly follow Jesus means you give up everything. Now, Jesus said this in in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So here he says, you've got to lose your life for me. Well, pastor, I thought you said it was free. Now you're saying I've got to give up my whole life for Jesus? Yeah, but it's not as a payment. It's a response to what he's offered you. And I was trying to think, how do I illustrate this, this kind of like total commitment that it takes to receive what Jesus has to give? So I thought, you know, it's, it's kind of like if I would give you a Christmas present of a skydiving experience. I pay $150, I give you this Groupon and it says, you know, you can go, go, on, go down to this place on this day. And you get to go on a plane for free and, and jump out and skydive. And you go, woohoo! And so you go down there to Canyon City, and you get on the plane. They say, uh, it's going to cost you 150 Nope, it's already paid for. Hand them your coupon. You get on the plane. Now the heart starts beating because you realize, what am I doing in this plane? And so now they strap this pack on your back. You go, hey, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not sure if I want to do this. And when the, the door opens, when you're at, what, 20,000 feet or however high they go up there, you're up in the air and they open the door and they say, okay, it's time to jump. You go, um, I'm not really sure if I want to do this. Now, I would say at, a, at that moment, you have one of two choices. You're either going to jump or you're not going to jump. You can't straddle the fence on skydiving experience. You're, you're either in or you're out. And 
If you jump, it is the only way you'll ever experience the thrill of skydiving. It's the only way. You have to let go, and, and it's a whole body experience. You have to participate in. I believe that's what Jesus is saying. You want to follow me? I'll give you a life that's so incredibly adventurous. But here's what it's going to require all of you. And here's where I think we mess up. We think we can dabble with Jesus. I think if I go to church once in a while, crack open a Bible once in a while, say a prayer now, and then God's happy, and God's saying, what are you turning this into? I have this great adventure for you. I have this incredible life for you. Don't you trust me? See, God wants us to be all in. It's kind of like if you're at a table and you're, and you're putting chips in or something, you say, okay, it's all in at this time. I, I'm giving you my, my future. I'm giving you my dreams. I'm giving you my bank account. I'm giving you my calendar. I'm giving you my kids. I'm giving you my business. I'm giving you everything. It's all yours. Jesus, have your way. Tell me what you want me to do with it. I, I'm here for you. It's only when we do that that I think we really experience the thrill of the Christian life. When we hold back and we go to church and we, and we come back and say, nah, that nothing spoke to me. I was kind of boring today. I didn't get anything out of it. I have to say, it's not that God's failing us. It's that we've never given ourselves wholly to it. I mean, think, there's a lot of other examples. You can look at marriage. Someone that gets married and then says, I'm halfway committed to this, you're going to have a miserable marriage. I can guarantee it. It's 100%. It's not like two people love each other 50%. The man loves a woman 100%. She loves him 100%. And you've got a marriage that's working. And when Jesus says, give me all of you, give me all of you, I think that's why he gave this symbolism of a baptism. You don't, you, we don't just dump water on someone's head when they're baptized or, or symbolically sprinkle them. You get buried, the whole body, because you give all of you to Jesus when you commit to him. It's like you're dying so that he can live. You know, there's a, a man in the Bible named the Apostle Paul. And he used to go around arresting Christians, have them thrown into prison, sometimes even killing them. Um, and, but he had a miserable heart. He wasn't a happy person. And Jesus came in a vision and confronted him and said, Paul, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? Why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul was so convicted by that encounter with Christ, he surrendered his life to Jesus and his plan for him. And years later, after he became probably the world's greatest missionary, traveled all over um, Asia Minor, planting churches, risked death and, and um, persecution and beatings and all these things for the Lord, at the end of his life, he, he looked back and he says, I have no regrets, none at all. In, in the book of Philippians, here's how Paul describes his journey. Whatever, was, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. All the stuff he'd been accumulating, all the stuff he says, I want to hold on to this. I got to keep this back from the Lord. He says, that's all garbage now. In comparison to knowing Jesus, knowing his plan for me, having this intimate relationship. And by the way, this next Sunday, I'm going to talk about how we progress in our relationship with the Lord. And it'd be a good way for you to look at where do you stand with Jesus at this point of time. But the truth is he wants to have a relationship with you. You might say, Pastor, that's good. I, I understand people in the Bible that lived in those times loved Jesus like that, but I, I don't know if that still works today, but it, it does. And there are many, many people in my life that I could point you to who would say, when I gave everything to Christ, he opened up a whole new adventure in my life. And I want to introduce to you a friend of mine named John Greer. John was up here singing just a little while ago, and uh, 
Jesus has done a lot of very good things for John in his life. And uh, he had a really rough childhood as he was growing up. Oh, there he is. He's way in back. He's been snacking. Okay, I've got to talk until he gets up there. But he can really move fast, too. That's a, a real blessing of John. Uh, <laughs> um, but God will change you. And as you look back over life, I don't know of anyone who went all in with Jesus who later on says, I, I gave God too much. In fact, I think it's just the opposite takes place. I think many of us are going to get to the end of our lives and we're going to have regrets saying, if I only would have trusted him more. And so, uh, thank you, John. (laughs) All right. Well, if you got to know this guy, you would probably say, I don't want my kids hanging around this guy because I know his past. He's got a pretty rough past. So give us a little background of how you grew up, what what home life was like, kind of things you got involved in. Well, sir, um, basically came up in a uh, single family home, grew up in the projects, public housing, crack house, prostitution, drugs, all that stuff involved. Uh, Started getting in trouble early on, you know, as a kid. Got into the system around age 13 is when I kind of made that big jump into the system, went to detention centers and then training school because, you know, I like to take other people's stuff. (laughs) You know, I'd steal something, man. I'd steal the stank off poop. And so... uh, But, uh, you know, it went from there, and, and I went to training school, and then after training school, you know, I didn't want to steal no more. I figured I'm just going to make some money. And so I just became a drug dealer and got into the street life and guns and drugs and using drugs and went through prison, and, you know, it, just, it was just a downhill trail from there. Just had to you even told me that cops were chasing you sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> I had quite a few interactions with cops. I mean... I done been beat up by cops. I done beat up a couple cops. I mean, I, me and cops didn't get along too great. I'm going to be honest with you. But, you know, I understand with the life that I was living, I was making some stupid decisions, you know. And, I mean, nobody's, you know, nobody's perfect. And so, you know, in that, more than anything, you know, I had a grandmother who was praying for me and just really always told me, you know, things ain't going to get right for you until you get right with God. And so I had a knowledge of the word and had gotten saved early on but you know I was one foot in one foot out really wasn't in it and so ended up you know five felonies convicted five times I was facing 25 to life twice God saw me out of that at the time I didn't know why but he saw me through that and uh, I I mean my, my what I saw my life was ending pretty much was like in some shootout high you know, whatever, just dying high and just going out in the glory. That's where I saw it. Well, one of, the, one of the days when you were laying in your bed in your cell, you said you really kind of had a, a moment where the Lord was speaking to you? Yeah. Um, on the third prison bed that I did, um, I was just laying on the bed, and I was just looking up, and I'm like, Lord, why I keep going through this? Why am I still, why, why things ain't changing, you know? Because I went to prison, got saved, got out, got back out in the streets, and this and that. So this time, I was like, Lord, what's going on? And Spirit just spoke to me. He was like, because you didn't learn your lesson. You haven't learned your lesson. Until you learn your lesson, you're going to keep going through the same old mess. And I was like, okay. And so at that time, I just really realized, okay, it's either got to be all or nothing. I gave him parts, some parts. And what I realized is that I gave the streets, that life, I gave it my all. I, I was totally committed, sold out in it. And I realized then that, if I can't give God what I gave them streets, then what's the purpose? And so I made up my mind before I even, you know, before I got out, you know, when I, actually when I first went in that last time, 
I'm Lord, I'm giving it all to you. I know you're the God of a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and another chance. And he always kept giving me chances. And so I just finally said, I'm in. And I just stuck it out. And then I went where he told me to go after I got out. And you, you, uh, you said you found a church and got involved and God really yes, started sir. to bless you. Yes, sir. And that's, that's when I really started to see me getting involved with Christ and really giving him my all. I started to see it really come to fruition because after I got out, I really was seeking God. I needed to find a church home, somewhere where I could get planted in, get locked in, and start applying myself. And so what I did, when I got out, I found a good church. I got involved with the youth ministry. I got involved with the choir. It's where I met my beautiful wife, started a family, got married, locked in, settled down. And then I began to see God on what he really had for me to do with my life. Because, I, like I said, I gave him my all. So I figured if I'm giving my all, he got something for me. And he had, you know, he, he helped me, you know, he showed me what he is he called me to do. And so I just went from that, and it's been straightforward ever since. Well, that's awesome. Well, I have one more question is looking back. Now, it's been, you know, maybe 14 years roughly since you've been a follower of the Lord, been all in. Any regrets? Sir? That's, that's an understatement. It's not about having regrets when I look at it. It's just when I compare where my life was, what I had. I mean, I was making all this money sometimes. Sometimes I wasn't in and out of the jail cells and the system and just no, going nowhere, giving my all, moving fast and wasn't moving nowhere at all. And then looking where God has brought me. And regardless, not saying that I, it's all perfect because it's not. I don't have this thing all locked down and on perfect, but I'm striving forward to go where he wants me to go, and I'm locked in, I'm in, I'm, I'm sold out completely. And so now looking back, I have no regrets. I would not change a thing, not one thing. I'm, I'm, on, I'm all in, I'm gone. That's awesome, guys. God bless you, brother. Yes, sir. There's actually a book that kind of plays off of, his comp, uh, of John's statement there. It's called All In. It's by a pastor named Mark Batterson. And, and in that book, Mark Batterson actually makes a statement that um, you are one decision away from a totally different future. You are one decision away from a totally different future. That decision to be all in can radically change your future. It changed John's future. See, God is looking to bless you. God is, God is wanting to work in your life. One of my favorite verses, really it's, it's been one of my life verses, Second Chronicles 16.9. It says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God wants to get behind the person who's all in and says, okay, you're all in, I'm all in with you. I'm going to bless you, I'm going to move you forward, I'm going to do great things in your life because you're all in. I'm looking for men and women like that. What would happen if you would decide tonight, you know what, I'm tired of playing church games. I'm tired of keeping God out there as a novelty in my life or as just a little hobby now and then. God, I'm going to take you seriously. All right, God, I'm going to go all in. Jesus said he was all in for us. He went to the cross. He says, your turn. Pick up your cross now. Follow me. Be willing to go wherever I want you to go. Be willing even to die for me. Be willing to do. But I'll tell you this. It will be the most incredible adventure of your life. Tomorrow, a movie is coming out. It's called Unbroken, and we're planning to watch it sometime tomorrow. And uh, it's just a fascinating story of a man named Louis Zemperini. Louis Zemperini was born 1917 in New York. His family moved to Torrance, California. And while they were there, at a young age, he got involved in some really bad stuff. He was smoking and drinking in elementary school. 
And so uh, he'd get in a lot of fights. His dad gave him a homemade weight set. He learned to uh, lift and to box. And so nobody bullied him at school because he became known as a very scrappy kid. His brother knew his, his temper and his penchant for fighting and urged him to take up track. So he started to run. And he had this incredible drive to where he excelled in the long-distance running. He went to the University of Southern California, and he was, a, he was a sensation on the track field. He represented the United States in the 1936 Olympics in the 5,000-meter run. And after the Olympics ended, he enlisted in the war because World War II was breaking out. It was during a, um, a mission over the Pacific Ocean when his plane went down. All 11 men on board crashed with him. Eight of them died. Three of them survived. And the story of the survival by itself is, is worth the movie because they were adrift on a raft for 47 days. They had very little water. They had very few rations of food. And they had to rely on their ingenuity and creativity. He was sort of like MacGyver on a raft, figuring out how to use all the different tools that he had. And believe it or not, Louis killed a shark with a pair of pliers. Isn't that amazing? I guess when you're that hungry, you'll do anything. But they needed water desperately. One time, about six days went by, they had no drinking water. And he made a prayer. He wasn't a praying guy, but he prayed, God, if you would give us water, I will, I will serve you the rest of my life. And within 24 hours, there was a torrential downpour. He says that actually there was two other times over that 47-day period when um, they experienced a, a longer drought and both, time, both other times that he prayed, God sent rain. And every time that he said that prayer, he said, God, if you do this, I'll commit this. And actually many times during those 47 days, he basically said, God, if you can get me through this, if you just get me back home, I will follow you, I will serve you the rest of my life. But when the rescue boat came, they realized it was not the Americans, it was the Japanese. And he was taken to a prisoner of war camp where for two years he was mistreated severely. And it was in the early days of that where they knew he was an Olympic athlete. They brought him into a very nice building. There was hot food being prepared. The rooms there had sheets on the beds, nice fluffy pillows, and said, this is where you're going to stay as long as you cooperate with us. We just want you to go on the radio and make a broadcast. And in that broadcast, they wanted him to spread some propaganda that he thought the American government was wrong and uh, they, they made bad choices and they didn't care about him. And because of his commitment to the military, he says, I cannot do that. That made them angrier. They threw him back in the POW camp and he was beaten almost daily. His, his um, officer in the prison was nicknamed the bird. He was incredibly cruel. At times, he would use Louis like a punching bag. Hit him with the right, hit him with the left, hit him with the right, hit him with the left. But he never gave in. One time during his stay there, and this, this um, prison camp was filled with rats and lice and disease, and they never treated them when they were sick. And one time when he was in, in an emaciated state, they, they, they told me he had to pick up this huge log and to raise it over his head, and that if he would drop it, he was going to get struck in the face with a pistol. Well, he was always one up for a challenge, and he determined himself he would not lose this. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever just held your hands up like this for a few minutes, it gets tiring. And when you're at your most tired state to hold on to a big timber, minutes went by. Half hour went by. People are in awe that this kid, this scrawny runner still has his board up over his head. At, at the 37th minute, the officer nicknamed the bird, punched him in the gut to make him drop it. 
But you know what? It inspired all the other uh, soldiers in prison there to fight, to not give in, to, to look forward to the beyond. And sure enough, there was a time where he was released. But here's what happened. When he was released, every night he would have nightmares. It, it was at that time an unknown illness, PTSD. But he, in order to deal with the, the nightmares and the torment of waking up and, and, and being tortured, he drank heavily. And the, the woman he was married to was seeing him deteriorate. And their marriage was just going down the tubes. And so when a Billy Graham crusade came into town, she said, would you go with me? He reluctantly said that he wasn't a religious man, but he would go. And that night at the Billy Graham crusade, this part is not in the movie, but he gets there at the Billy Graham crusade and halfway through he walks out. It means nothing to him. It's for other people. He goes home. Well, the, the crusade's all week long, so she invites him back again. He decides he'll go with her again, but this time God ambushes him. And all of a sudden his mind goes back to the moments on the raft when he looked up to heaven and said, God, if you will get me through this, I will serve you the rest of my life. And he fell to his knees there in the, in the, uh, the, or the uh, Colosseum. He fell to his knees and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. That night, he did not have a nightmare and never did ever again. Something began to change inside of him. In fact, he, he had made a promise that he would always hate the Japanese and he would never step foot on Japanese soil again. But in 1950, God had so filled his heart with love that he went back to Tokyo. He went back to one of the um, war camps where he was tortured. And at this time, it had been converted into a prison for the, the actual perpetrators of the war crimes. There were 850 Japanese officers now being held there for their war crimes. He went back into that camp to tell those men he forgave them all. He especially wanted to find the one cruel man nicknamed the bird, but nobody knew where he was. He actually was found hiding, hiding in, in a distant area many years later. So in 1996, when the Olympics were in, in Japan, he got to carry the torch across the area that passed by the, the, the POW camp. He requested a meeting with the bird, but he refused. And yet Louis says, it doesn't matter whether I see him or not, I have forgiven him. And he quoted... Uh, a statement by Mark Twain. I don't think Mark Twain's known for his theology, but I love the quote. Quote is, forgiveness is the fragrance of the violet upon the heel that crushes it. That those who hurt us, those who do us wrong, that there is a sweetness that comes through Christ to enable us even to say, I forgive you for what you've done to me. It's so like Jesus. You know, Louis' life was changed because of that one moment of time where he bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. That one decision changed the rest of his life forever. I, I, I wouldn't want you to miss out an opportunity like that. I know many of us will go on and do our normal activities, but there's some people here that tonight, you are here for a reason. God wants you to know that you can move beyond just believing in him to trusting in him. And you are one decision away from a totally different life. And so I want to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of surrender to the Jesus we've been singing about, the Jesus we've been talking about, the Jesus that makes Christmas this day we celebrate. And if you agree in your heart, you can say this prayer in your mind. Uh, you can whisper this prayer out loud if you want, but I would like you to pray it with me. I'd just like all of us to close our eyes and bow for a moment. Say a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth to pay a steep price for my sin. 
Thank you that you've never given up on me, though I've rejected you time and time again. And Jesus, I know that there's more to this thing called eternal life than I've experienced. And I've been holding back. But tonight, I declare to you, I'm all in. All of me. All of my heart, all of my passions, all of my dreams, all of my possessions, all of my hurts and heartaches, I give it all to you. And Lord, will you do something great with my life? Show me the purpose of why you've kept me alive on this earth. Use me for your glory, Lord. I'm willing to say yes to whatever it is you want me to say. I I say yes to whatever it is you want me to do. I say yes to wherever you want me to go. Because I want this thing called eternal life. I want a relationship with you that's exciting and adventurous, that's sometimes even scary, but it's the thrill of why we were created on this earth. So I surrender to you in Jesus' name. May I be one of those that you look across the earth and your eyes land upon and says, now there's one who trusts me completely. In Jesus' name, Lord, let that be me. Amen. Amen. You know, in your bulletin today was a... Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.